This is a reading from 1 Kings 17, beginning at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We ask that this morning you would open it to our hearts and minds that we might come to know who it is you are and what it is you're like, that you would break down the idols and false images in our hearts and that we would see you, the one true and holy God. But we need the help of your Son and the Holy Spirit to be able to penetrate the things you have for us this morning. So we ask that you would bless us all, speaker and hearer, as we seek your word and your will together in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> kind of leading up to next week, and really when you read through Deuteronomy and um, you hear all this stuff about 
you know, fighting and casting down the idols of the Canaanites and all these kinds of things. And as we see next week with the battle between um, Elijah and Baal, in all of these things, God is far less concerned with the Israelization of Canaan than the Canaanization of Israel. In other words, God is concerned about the change that comes into our hearts, that takes us away and draws us away from God, from trusting in him. There is kind of a whole way of thinking about life which has less to do with the power of God and more to do with the gods of power. And that's what Baal worship essentially is. It's forcing God's hand to make stuff happen. And there's a whole way of thinking about life that talks about, um, that talks about squeezing everything that we can out of every day and every moment, squeezing all that we can. But what do we do? This, this whole philosophy is, is completely useless when life squeezes everything out of us. Amen. You see, our lives as a whole are bound by two great limits. There ain't enough resources and there ain't enough time. And these two limits that we have are the source of every conflict from anxiety to war. They're all rooted in the question, is there enough? From the beginning, Cain killed Abel because he asked, is there enough blessing for me too? Is there enough favor for both of us? Abraham bore a child with Hagar because he's worried, is there enough time to conceive an heir for the promises of God? And basically what idolatry is, it's our own attempts to secure in our own way time and resources. We do it out of fear, we do it out of pride, but both are basically assertions of our desire for ultimate control. We might do it by worry, positive thinking, demanding, coercing, cause and effect based rituals. We may do it by negotiating with God, but ultimately we cannot make more resources and we can't make more time. Pastor Hannah showed us last week that the gods of Canaan whom Israel had turned to are bound by time and subject to the same cycles as we are. They're, they're not just different in terms of um, they're different in terms of character. And the problem comes when we believe somehow that God is just like us and people that we know only bigger and stronger. Because the thing that then follows naturally out of this is God, are you just going to treat me the way everyone else has? The life of faith really requires that God not just be different by size, but by category. He is holy, 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 and we are not, not, not. He is one who's completely other, and until we get that into our minds, we can never, we, we don't live the life of faith. So here is Elijah. He's called to pronounce the Lord's cor curse of drought on the land, and it's going to affect everyone. And guess what? Even prophets get thirsty. So basically, the, the Lord says, I'm going to give you this message, and what you're going to do is saw the limb off that you're sitting on. Well, thank you. So, um, <laughs> so the Lord provides for his messenger, though. And some 
high-class arrangements. What you're going to do is sit by the brook. I'm going to send ravens to feed you. That sounds kind of shaky to me. Um, but Elijah is called to trust the Lord as the Lord's people should have trusted him. And this is a characteristic of what we call these two prophets, God's troublers. These troublers of Israel are people who will trust God when others will not. We become these troublers when we live out the faith that people said is impossible. We are called to live a faithfulness that our, that our natural inclinations call inconvenient, impractical, risky, irrational, and God's plans, his purposes, they look to us from our vantage point as though they hang by a single thread. And in this case, Elijah sits there by the brook, and the brook dries up. And soon dehydration has set in. So where do you go? It's interesting that while Ahab is king of Samaria, that Asa is king in Judah. That whereas this one king in the north is leading the whole country into fierce idolatry, the other half of the country is undergoing revival. And if, if I were Elijah, I would be thinking right now, I need to go where my people are. I need to go where people are going to take care of me and keep me from this king who wants to kill me. The smartest thing I could possibly do is go south. And the Lord says, go north. Instead of go to where the king will protect you as the Lord's messenger, he says, there's a widow in this little town. That's where you're going to go. Yeah, Zarephath is up north, the real trouble of Israel. It's where the idolatry came from. It's a place that produced Ahab, Jezebel's wife, whose influence fueled the rebellion against the Lord. If Elijah needed the help of faithful people, God was sending him in the wrong direction. And the support of a single mom with a little boy during a family would seem like an imposition. But the Lord spoke to Elijah. And I love these words that follow. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, and he sees the situation is, is just like the Lord said it. Sometimes when I'm reading scripture, I hear the score in my mind. You know, do you ever do this? You, you hear the music. And in this case, I hear the, ah, the chorus of heaven, right? Here's the light coming down. And the situation is just as the Lord said it would. The one who's, who was going to sustain the prophet, who's going to shatter our, mis, our preconceptions and misconceptions for generations and bolster our faith in time of trial. And there she is, standing in the city gates, a woman gathering sticks. That's her. That's the one that God's going to use. The city gate's the worst place to gather sticks. It's picked over, it's trod down. And maybe she stayed close there in the most picked over place because she didn't have anyone to watch her little boy. Or maybe she stayed there because she had nobody to watch her back. When it's a time of marauders and a time of famine, you don't dare look down unless you can have someone behind you looking out. She knows what it is to have a limit of resources. 
But Elijah knows something that she doesn't know. The Lord has chosen to tie his future with hers. He begins by asking her to do the difficult and then by asking her to do the impossible. Bring me a little water. There's a drought. And while you're at it, bring me just a little bit of bread in your hand. There's a famine. She knows also what it is to feel like time is limited too. I mean, she begins the story without a future. That makes for a very short story, unless something changes. She has no hope, no help, no food. She sums up her own future in, the, in these words. As the Lord lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour and a little oil in a jar. I'm gathering a few sticks so that we may go and prepare for me and my son and we may die. She has narrowed her future down. She feels like life has narrowed her future down to a handful of flour and a couple of sticks. She knows the press of time. She even speaks in the name of the Lord, your God, Elijah, you know, the living God. She is, is certain that, that he is. She seems certain that he exists. But she seems equally certain that he has dealt with her just like everybody else has. That God is as unconcerned with her as so many others have been. You know, it doesn't help that God is great if he's not good. I mean, it's natural in a way to think that that the, the king who holds history in one hand and the future in the other might overlook us. And when our situation gets desperate, whatever it is, it gets, it gets hard to think past it. It's hard to imagine a different future, a future made possible only by God. We look at the sticks on the ground and the flower in our hands and we say, maybe we'll just have a little bit to eat before we die. And some odd man who comes up who's been fed by ravens doesn't seem like an answer. He seems like an imposition. He seems like a problem rather than a possibility. But the question is whether we will trust God to open the impossible for us. Because so often we might say that we're being good stewards, we're being responsible, we're sticking to our calling, we're being faithful with little. And what we're doing is we're being terrified. We focus all of our energies on our obstacles and miss our opportunities. And so the first thing that we have to do in terms of this trusting God, the, the first thing we have to do is confront our fears. I love it. In verse 13, Elijah says, do not fear. Sometimes in order to hear God's word to us. We need to turn down the noise. So often my mind is filled with this repeated loop of the problem. I already know the problem, thank you. I don't need to rehash it. And as I stare at the empty bowl and the depleted bottle, my anxiety intensifies. In those moments, we move from fear to fear. 
But here's what has to happen. To see the plenty of God, the woman has to risk the little she has. It's the act on which everything else depends. Just as Elijah trusted God to provide him by being fed by ravens, the woman has to trust God enough to feed the prophet. As he says, make a little cake for me, yours. It isn't just our fears we need to give up. We need to give up our false consolations. We need to know that our future is more than the sticks in the hand of flour. That if we hand those to God, he can do remarkably more with them. We need a word from heaven that opens our eyes to the possibilities that only God can provide. We need God's word to confront our foundational idea that all of our resources are limited. This closed system that we live in that says there's only so much, there's only so much time. Squeeze all you can out of life now because soon it will be gone. There's a problem with it. I had a word like this one time. You ever have one of those moments when God speaks to you and it thoroughly messes you up? Uh, here's one of them from my life. I remember being caught up and, you know, we had two little kids at the time. It was a Saturday. It was my one day of the week home for some time. And um, they were bouncing between things to do. And um, at some point, things were quiet and settled enough. And God spoke to me. He said, you believe you're going to live forever? I said, yeah. I said, well, then why don't you have time to spend with me? And I said, oh. And why don't you focus more on the children I've given you? Why do you rush through each thing rather than enjoying who they are? If you believe you're going to live forever, why are you in such a hurry? That was the day that in a prayer that someone prayed for me that I realized that people are sent into your life by God and they're precious. And what is going on with them and their lives is some of the most important stuff that we do. In order to get that, we need a word from the Lord. And that word confronts this idea that we are just limited. It, it took a word from the Lord for Moses to see that by a shepherd's crook, he would deliver Israel from Egypt. It took a word from the Lord for Joshua to see that blowing a ram's horn would break down the walls of Jericho. It took a word of the Lord to show, that, to show Deborah and Barak that mud from a rainstorm would lead Israel to victory. It took a fugitive prophet and a Canaanite widow with a word from the Lord for God to preserve Israel and Judah. And for a man on the cross, it took a man on the cross for God to provide salvation for the world. And now comes this word, thus says the Lord. 
the bowl won't run out and the jar won't run out before he sends rain on the face of the earth. Well, it seems like it's going well. <laughs> the woman, the son survive. The prophet is lingering about. But now this tragedy happens. Her son has died. The woman of Zarephath suspects that the prophet of God is the troubler of her. What is this between you and me, O man of God, she says? Have you come to bring remembrance of my iniquity in order to put my son to death? How long had she lived with shame and regret, wondering what she had done to make God treat her the way that she had been treated all her life? She lost her husband so young. She struggled to care for her son. A drought that threatens all life, and now she's still alive, and her son is dead, and she's there to see it, forgotten, overlooked, fearful, hopeless. She had trusted God. She had supported the prophet. And her son died anyhow. It was her greatest fear come true. And there was nothing that she could do and fix it, to fix it. And she had just basically one more question. You prophet! Did you come all the way to Zarephath just to treat me like everyone else has? By small acts of faith that God provides and prepares us for larger ones. It's interesting, this idea of Jesus talks about a seed of faith. And it's a seed of faith that prepares us for the work to receive the work of God. And it's the work of God that increases our faith. And it's that increase in faith that prepares us for the work of God. And that work that he does increases our faith. She's done this little step of giving the prophet bread. And God has sustained her for we don't know how long after. The reality is that God desires to move us, not from fear to fear, but faith to faith. At the end of the day, we've got to ask, God, do I provide for me or do you? God, do I do this thing or do you? If we believe that our mission is to squeeze everything we can out of life, we're going to find quickly that life has squeezed everything out of us. That we need a source of water that doesn't run out. That we need a pot of meal that doesn't go empty. We need to ask, is, is God just caught in the same cycles as we are? Is he subject to the same whims? Is he arbitrary? Or is he not only great, is he careless? Is he not only great, but is he also good? It, ultimately, we have to ask the question, is God limited by the ultimate limit, death itself? I mean, Elijah's coming has given this mother more time to love her son in this world, but every limit is still a limit unless God can raise the dead. Idolatry can allow us to eke out a living, but only God can give us life. But even that's enough. Because like this woman, we can be sure that God is able and yet doubt that he's willing. We can believe that he's great and doubt that he's good. 
Elijah, oh, I've been floored by this all week. He, he knows this, this woman's question, and he hears it not as an affront to him. He knows who the woman is really addressing, kind of what's at the core of this thing that's going on there. He can tell. And he picks up the boy, and he goes upstairs as though just to make a little bit less space between him and heaven, just in case. And he lifts his head, and he says, Adonai Elohim, here is this woman who's proven that she believes you're great, but right now she has every reason not to believe you're good. And what I want to know and what she wants to know is this. Are you going to just treat her like everyone else has too? But then he does something else. And we've been studying laments. We studied laments a few weeks ago in our um, Wednesday night. To be able to pray like that is vital for the Christian life. Vital that we'd be able to bring our questions to God, our doubts and our fears to him. If you trust God, you can trust him with your fears. If you trust him, you can trust him with your doubts. So voice them to him. But Elijah then brings her son back down alive. And she says, now I know you're the man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. This is really remarkable. And this is kind of a whole other matter, but it's, it's beautiful. The fact that the king in Israel has rejected the word of the Lord, but a widow in Zarephath outside of Israel believes the word of the Lord is both a serious problem and a real point. In fact, it becomes a bone of contention when Jesus reads uh, in the synagogue and then says to them, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and there came a famine over the land, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon, who was a widow. It's frightening to think that the God of Israel has to look beyond the borders of Israel to find someone who will do his will. But this is how Rahab and Ruth and this widow became great among the people of God because you don't obey his word because you're his people. You're his people because you obey his word. But the other side of this, too, is that he's not overlooked you. He's not like everybody else, but bigger and stronger and scarier. The, the, the difference between the religion of the Canaanites and the, and the faith in Yahweh. You can come to the religion of the Canaanites by looking around and saying, well, people are people, so God must be people too. And people hurt each other, so the gods must hurt each other too. And so, unless we get a word from God, we can imagine like the Canaanites did that God is great, but it's hard to fathom by looking at the world just naturally the way we see it. Sometimes it's hard to imagine that he is good. And so this is what he's done to us. He's given us his word. He hasn't just given us his word, he's given it to us in the form of a covenant. He said, I'll love you so much that I'm going to swear to you that I'm going to take care of you no matter what happens. And you know what? I'm going to, 
I'm so serious about it. Going back to Abram, yeah, there's a moment when, when, God's, when Abraham said to God, are you really going to do everything you said? Are you going to really take care of me? Are you going to really look out for me? Are you going to fulfill your promises? And God said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. You go cut up these animals and lay them out. And there's this trail of bloody carcasses. And Abram knows what's supposed to happen, right? They each are supposed to pass through those carcasses. And what they're saying is, May that happen to me. May I be torn asunder if I don't keep your word, if I don't keep my promises to you. And then God calls his heavy sleep to fall on Abram. He can't even get up. He's watching from sideways as the furnace of fire of the blazing holiness of the Lord passes between the pieces. And God is saying this. May I be torn asunder before I break my word to you. I'm so serious about your well-being that I would sooner die than see any less that the blessings I have for you come to you. And then God did this. You see, the Son of God died so the son of the widow of Zarephath could live. What you saw was a glimpse of the future. Because what you saw on the cross was God saying, may I be torn asunder before I let one of the promises I have made to you fail. And this is how we know the difference. God is not just like everybody else. He's not going to treat you just the same way you've been mistreated. He loves you and he's that serious about you. To be saved, the first thing you've got to know is that's God is strong enough to save you. To be saved, the second thing you got to know is that God loves you enough to care for you. And that's all given to you in the person of Jesus Christ. What that does is it opens endless possibility. The back door of death has been kicked open and we never even knew it was there when Jesus rose from the dead. He's not only alive, he's able and there's no more such thing as a dead end. There is no more lost cause. There is no more hopeless situation. Jesus died first of all to cleanse us of our sins but he raised to give us new life. In other words, to open the door of your future. John 17 says, this is eternal life that you may know God and Jesus Christ, his son whom he has sent. In other words, it's a relationship that's ongoing. Like we were saying a couple weeks ago, when you came to the cross, that wasn't the end, that was the start. And what you'll do as you walk with God is you'll discover more and more that he's not just like everybody else. But even more, that when life has squeezed everything out of you, that he has more than enough to pour into you, to sustain you. But the thing we gotta do, the thing that's so tough, I think that's impossible, is, is to Quit trying to figure out how to do it ourselves. 
And that takes faith. Faith. Faith takes a surrender of fear, the giving up of our false hopes, and hearing the word of the Lord. That's what it takes. You turn from those ways that you have tried to make it on your own and place your life in the hands of God who will hold you up and bear you up and take you and bring you through it. He'll bring you through life. He'll bring you through death. Will you live like heaven is real and God's word is true? That's my hope for you. Let's pray together. I mean, Father, we have so many fears. We have so many doubts. This morning we place them all before you. Lord, a lot of the ways that we doubt come from the ways we've been loved. It's hard to trust goodness when all of the goodness we've known has been mixed and tainted and broken. I pray, Father, that this morning that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would entrust our lives to you, that you would help us not to look at the obstacles but to be faithful in the word you have given us. To go to Zarephath when it's tempting to go to Judah. To feed the prophet when it seems more reasonable just to die. And to cry with real tears in the faith of death mixed with hope. That you would do that in our lives, in our troubles, in our congregation and community, in the faith of sickness and death regarding our loved ones. As we face these difficulties, I pray that you would teach us anew that you're not bound you're not bound by the lack of resources or the bound or bound by the lack of time. That you are over those things. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.